Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's John Cavell, and uh, um, my connections here started primarily through Jordan, who is related to me. I made him. <laughs> well, I didn't really make him. I mean, I pretty much had the easier job in actually constructing. But uh, yes, I raised him along with my wife, who's sitting right there. That's Joy. And so uh, last week, uh, in listening to uh, Rich's sermon from Ephesians 3, um, I, I was thinking about that and thinking about, well, what, you know, when I do preach, I kind of like to try to sync up a little bit with him. I'm not really doing part of the series because he really wouldn't trust me with that. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I wanted to do something that sort of complements that, that would jump off of that. And, um, and so uh, I decided that I would tell a story from my own life, which I don't typically uh, like to do a lot of, but I felt like it was relevant to what he was bringing up um, in that. So uh, what I want to talk about today is uh, what I've titled the sermon today is how to handle what you think you can't handle. Um, if you've ever been in a situation in life where you just feel like, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. Uh, maybe it'd be some kind of hardship financially, relationally, physically, um, but often in the example that I'm going to use, it would have to do more with um, health and physical challenges in life. And there's a few verses that sometimes we quote or, or get quoted a lot, but not necessarily correctly. Like, have you ever heard somebody when they're about to pray and they say, well, when two or more are gathered, Jesus said, there I am in their midst. You ever heard that before? That verse has nothing to do with prayer. Uh, it's from Matthew 18, and it's about when basically church leadership has to get together and make a decision. Because when you think about it, it's not like Jesus said, hey, if two or more of you will show up, then I'll show up too. But it's really not worth it. Try to get at least two people, and then I'll come to. That's because that's not true. If one person who has Christ living inside them shows up, Jesus is there. But sometimes people, I've seen that so many times on, you know, on things that have to do with prayer. And it's like, well, that's a nice thought, but it has nothing to do with prayer. And it's really not theologically correct. Anyway, so have you ever heard the verse that says it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven than to stick a needle in the eye of a camel? How many of you have heard that one before? Okay, I have quoted that verse in front of crowds of over a thousand, and you'll see half the hands go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's like, really, stick a needle in the eye of a camel, great. Um, other people will often quote, you know, one thing I forgot to do is I went and got some water because when I start talking, my mouth always gets dry, and then you start making those sounds in your mouth that sound like you're stirring macaroni and cheese. It's really annoying. <laughs> You know, I hate it when I have to listen to that, so I'm not going to perpetrate that upon you. But sometimes people will say, well, you know, the Bible says God will never allow more than I can handle. How many of you have heard that verse? Well, if you could find that one, I would be interested in seeing it. 
uh, often that that is a misinterpretation or a misquote of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, no temptation has seized you except that which you will be able to bear. Meaning God's not going to allow you to be tempted by something that you cannot resist. But to, does God ever say, I'll never give you something you cannot handle? Well, I haven't seen it. And so, you know, often what that's applied to is that, well, would God allow more heartbreak or rejection than you can handle? And what does handle mean? Does that mean what you can handle on your own? Does that mean what you can handle without the support of people who care for you? Does that mean what you could handle without prayer, without having relying on God? What does handle something mean? What does it mean to handle something? Jesus made a statement that I think kind of deals with this issue because often our tendency is because, you know, we care, we want to be good people. And so when we hear that somebody is suffering some way, somebody is experiencing some kind of affliction or hardship, we want to pray for them. And what do we want to pray for? healing. We want to pray for relief. We want to pray that whatever that affliction is or hardship, that it would go away. But then there's times when I wonder in my life, if maybe God was allowing something that was difficult and challenging, and maybe there were people praying, oh God, please relieve John of this. And God was going, yeah, maybe. Not yet, though. <laughs> maybe not right now. Um, so what I want to talk about today is how to handle what you think you can't handle. Um, several years, well, back in 2016, uh, I've been a pastor here in the Valley in various capacities at a few different churches since 1992. And during that time, I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of people in the hospital. I've had the opportunity to spend time with people who were dying. I've sat with people while they died. And I would go, and as a pastor, with all the right intentions, I would try to say things that would bring comfort or help people make sense and try to bring a theological perspective to their suffering and to their challenges. But up until 2016, I had never actually had to take my theology and all those things that I would say to other people and apply them to myself. So I don't know if God was kind of going, you know, John, maybe we need to figure out whether that stuff that you've been telling people actually works. I got that opportunity. So in 2016, one day I just went for what I thought was going to be a routine checkup, doctor appointment. And uh, within an hour of seeing the doctor, I was in the ER uh, having my blood tested and finding out that I was in total kidney failure. I had felt a little off. I'd felt what I know now are some symptoms of kidney failure, but I didn't realize it was that big of a deal. I mean, I had stuff to do. Okay. Um, so basically I was in kidney failure. They immediately put me on dialysis started drilling holes and, you know, in all this area and putting in ports and all that kind of stuff. 
And so we got through that. I went on dialysis. And then the next month following that, I contracted a blood disease. I don't know if you've ever heard of MRSA. Yeah, it's nasty. And so that, so they started pumping me full of all these antibiotics and, you know, all sorts of drugs and things like that. And that put me into the ICU, which was really kind of experienced. You ever heard of hospital delirium? Uh, it's when you're in like ICU and you're in a state and you start having these hallucinations. And so uh, there was one point where I really was convinced that one of my nurses was coming at me with an ax. And given my sense of humor and probably how irritating I was as a patient, you know, I mean, it, it was fair. You know, I didn't blame her for that. And then one time I woke up or what I thought I was waking up and I looked around and I saw what I thought was all these, you know, those sort of shiny metallic balloons get well soon. But hanging from one was a, was a brand new iPad. And so, wow, somebody get, sent me a get well iPad. That was really nice. And so the next day, Jordan was visiting me and I said, hey, I think somebody sent me an iPad. He goes, nobody sent you an iPad. And I said, no, no, there, there, was an, there was like a get well iPad in my room. I thought he goes, dad, no, nobody sent you an iPad. You know, and I thought he just stole it, which, you know, we're still working that out. Um, so then what happened is that about six months went by. So I'm still on dialysis and they're putting all these antibiotics in the dialysis thought we had gotten in front of all that. And then I got to where my back was hurting so much, I literally couldn't stand up straight. Well, as it turned out, now I had what was that MRSA, that infection had not been obliterated by the antibiotics. It, the antibiotics had just chased it through my body and then it started hiding in my spine. And so now I had what's called osteomyelitis of the vertebrae, which if you look at pictures on Google and you look at the vertebrae like that, it looks like just rats have been chewing on it and things like that. And so they said, well, we're going to have to do surgery. So as a result of that, in January, I now have two titanium rods that go down my spine and are connected in 15 places. And um, so I was down at uh, Barrow Brain and Spine and had one of their surgeons who said, wow, this is the most complicated surgery I've ever done. I'm like, do I get a discount for that? I mean, it's, you know, it's great when one of your doctors goes, you know, you're my sickest patient. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. You know, you don't get anything for that. You don't get a discount. You don't get any nothing for that, except maybe they write an article and present it. But, you know, you don't get anything from that. Who cares? Um, well, then later after that, I think it was in 2017, they removed my right kidney. I mean, both my kidneys at this point were about as useful as a couple of raisins uh, sitting in your abdomen. So they removed the right kidney because it turned out it had a mass on it that turned out to be malignant. Uh, but luckily, because they just removed the whole kidney, they got all of it. And so there wasn't a big cancer thing. Um, and so, you know, rehab, unable to work, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, when I was in the hospital, there was a guy in my room. And it's funny because you'll have roommates in the hospital, but typically that partition is closed all the time. And so you'll literally go several days hearing somebody next to you and you have no idea like what they look like. You know all about them because you're overhearing everything, but you don't know what that guy looks like. You wouldn't know him if he slapped you, you know? And so he goes, hey, uh, so it sounds like you're like a, like a reverend or spiritual or something like that. And I'm like, well, you know, I've been called worse things, but sure, I'll take that. Uh, I said, yeah, kind of, yeah. He goes, so, you ever ask, why me? 
And I said, no, I don't. I said, if anything, I guess I would ask, why not me? I mean, human beings suffer all the time. Get sick, encounter hardship. And, you know, when I think about that question, do you ever ask, why me? I have to ask, well, why would I ask, why me? What would, what would make me ask that? And it would basically go back to expectations. You know, what would my expectations be that would cause me to say, well, why me, God? You know, I, I remember, you remember some of you, yeah, you guys are mostly old enough to remember this. Remember the Olympics with the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding thing where Tanya got supposedly somebody to whack Nancy and her knee. And I remember seeing it on TV and it was after she'd been hit and she's sitting there and she's going, why, why, you know, and it's like, I'm not blaming her, but that's what our go-to response is when stuff like that happens. And it implies an expectation like this should not have happened. Now, no, Tanya should not have had her knee whacked. I mean, that was uncool, not fair, not supposed to do that. You know, or unless you're just going to include that as an Olympic sport, you know, just full contact, you know, uh, figure skating or whatever it is. Get two, get two female skaters out there. Each has a weapon <laughs> and they got to, you know, to do the twirls, but bam, you know, and if you can take the other ones out, it's like, a, you know, the biathlon, the one they have right now where you have to hike through the snow and then you got to shoot at something. I thought, you know what would be cool is they should just take all of them, send them into the forest, and there's only the gold medal. Because basically one person comes out, you know, and that person wins. Because you go in, you got to hike through, and then you pick off the other competitors, and whoever emerges victorious wins. That would be interesting to me. That would be, yeah, okay. Well, if they ever do that, then you and I can get together and we'll check it out. All right. So anyway, um, now that I've pretty much lost whatever credibility I might have had. Um, the first point is how you're going to handle what you think you can't handle is you got to recalibrate your expectations. You got to recalibrate your expectations. Um, Jesus made a statement. I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Where that verse comes from is John chapter 10 in verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, what does abundantly mean? What is the abundant life? Is the abundant life mean a life that is free from distress? Does it mean it's, a, it's free from affliction? Does it mean it's free from any kind of conflict? or burdens, or anything like that. Because later on in John 15, Jesus said this to those same people, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And then he went on in John chapter 16. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So he's saying to the same people who said, I came that you would have an abundant life. People might hate you. 
because of your faith. And throughout history, people have been hated because of faith in Christ, persecuted because of faith in Christ. Doesn't happen in our world very much. But it has happened. And so what is the abundant life? Does it mean a life free from trouble? Not according to Jesus. Because he says in this life, you're going to have trouble. In this life, you might be hated for your faith. That's the abundant life. We have to sometimes recalibrate our expectations. If we're saying, well, God's be doing something wrong because he's not keeping my life free from any kind of trouble. Well, where did that expectation come from? Did we just make that up? Maybe we heard it somewhere and it sounded great. It sounded convincing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. And have we put an expectation on God that he never promised to fulfill? There's a verse that I like to call the uh, hospital verse. Romans 8, 28. Maybe you've memorized this. Maybe you've even quoted. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Maybe you've gone to somebody, visited somebody in the hospital and said, hey, well, remember, all things work together for good for those who love God. And people came and quoted that to me. But, you know, it's interesting because it kind of implies something that maybe God doesn't mean to imply. So if I'm laying in the hospital and I just got hit by a bus and somebody comes in and goes, ah, remember them. All things work together for good. And then it's like, someday you're going to be glad you got hit by a bus. I've never met anybody who ended up going, you know, I'm really glad I got hit by that bus. And it's as if there is some mysterious payoff in the future. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But see, what happens is when you memorize just one verse, one little bumper sticker-like phrase that's easy to remember, and it sounds really nice. Sometimes we neglect context. Because in verse 29, it actually says what the good is. He goes on to say, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. That good, in verse 28, is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. The good thing that God is working toward in whatever situation we're in, whether it's difficult, whether it's easy, whether it's burdensome, whether it's not, is not that we would experience some payoff in the future. So put up with it now for a while because God will make it worth it to you. The good is that you become like Jesus. That what's important to God becomes more important to us. That what's unimportant to God becomes less important to us. And that we treat people the way Jesus would. That's the good. And so sometimes it may be circumstances that are difficult and challenging. I remember when I was laying in the hospital and, you know, it gets boring after a while, but every Sunday afternoon, somebody would walk by with this whole bunch of cards and they'd 
dump them at the nurse's station. And then one of the nurses would come in and go, well, aren't you popular? And I said, well, no, actually, I'm not necessarily. I said, but this is from uh, my church. These are people that are praying for me. And then I hear stories about people say, well, my, this one lady said, my son's whole platoon or Bible study in the Philippines, in the, he's in the service, they're all praying for you. I mean, literally, all these different people were praying for me. But the whole good thing wasn't that, well, all right, so here I am. I've been in total kidney failure. I got MRSA. I got a bunch of metal in my spine. I had cancer. Then, all right, so God owes me big time because all things work together for good. So there better be a big good waiting for me in the future. But what if God was going, no, John, the good is if you decide to, if you're willing to, this circumstance, you can take this opportunity to become more like Jesus. Are you going to do that or not? What are you going to do with that? The good is really on us if we want it. If we want to allow a challenging circumstance to make us more like Christ or not. There's a quote from a guy named Paul W. Powell, who said, God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. We are probably more, most often the opposite of that. I'll confess, I'm really more concerned about my comfort than my character. I spend more time thinking about how whether or not the things in my life are the way I want them than I think about whether or not I am the way God wants me. I see two of you can relate to that. The rest of you are looking at me like, what a loser. Why are you even up there preaching? So you got to recalibrate our expectations. The next thing is this. The last time I preached here, I preached from Ephesians. And I'm sure those of you who were, who were here remember it and have been thinking about it ever since. At least that's what I tell myself. Um, but the conclusion there was that to stop asking God for help that he's already given us. And so that's one of the things that if we're going to be able to learn how, do you, how to handle what we think we can't handle. The second thing after recalibrating our expectations, is to stop asking God for help that he's already given. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Look at the grammar of that verse. Am I praying for something that God has already given me? Am I asking God to bless me with something? He's going, I already did. You know, last time, last month, we were talking about the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, I want to be more loving. And God goes, well, great. You have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Go be more loving. Oh, God, make me more kind. And you're going, I've given you everything you need to be kind. If you're not being kind, that's on you. I don't know if God talks to you like that. That's pretty much the way he talks to me, I think. I don't hear it, but I just imagine that most of the time God looks at me and just kind of like is exasperated, shakes his head, just goes, try not to break anything. 
you know, I'm just like, he's just always a little irritated with me, probably more often than not. And so God is, is we're often asking God for stuff he's already given us. I want to be more kind. And God goes, well, then go be more kind. Well, I didn't really get more kind today. So it must be God's fault because he didn't make me kinder. And God's going, I've given you everything you need. Go be more kind. If you're not kind, if you're a jerk, that's on you. Don't blame me because you don't want to take advantage of the blessings you've been given. You want to be more loving. You want to be more patient. You want to be more gentle. You have everything you need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. Go do it. Go be those things. And so when we're going through a tough situation, well, you know, God, help me put up with this. God goes, I already helped you. I've given you everything you need. Believe it and then go do it. And so often we want to put it back on God when he's given us everything. And so we spend time asking God for things he's already given us. And so maybe instead of saying, God, help me be more patient, help me be more kind, help me be more loving, help me be more gentle. Maybe it's God, thank you for giving me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that I can be more kind. I can be more gentle. I can be more loving. I can be all those things I want to be. You've given me everything. Thank you. Now it's up to me. The next thing is this. We got to recalibrate our expectations. Got to stop asking God for things he's already given. And the third thing is this. Be honest with God. Be honest with God. A long time ago when I first started this whole following Christ thing, I was about 18, 19 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't grow up in a home that went to church or learned the Bible. I didn't know Easter was about Jesus till I was 19. So when I started this, I was a blank slate. I had no background. And so I remember thinking about prayer. Well, how are you supposed to talk to God? Well, God loves you. He's like, you know, some people, he's like your friend just hanging out with you. So you can talk to him like a friend. And it's like, you know, so I tried that. And it's like, hey, God, how you doing? You know, what you up to? And that just felt weird. You know, that didn't work. So, but I remember I always felt like, well, I don't want to say some stuff to God. Like, I don't want to tell him what I really struggle with. Well, as if he didn't know. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, one of the things that is going to get us through challenging time, is going to help us to handle the things we think we can't handle, is being honest with God. In Psalm 13, David, the man after God's own heart, King David, wrote the majority of the book of Psalms, which is like a worship manual for Israel at the time. Wrote this in Psalm 13. He's, he's, he's writing about a time when he was in, in trouble. Saul was after him and life was not good. And he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? God, where are you? How long is this going to go on? How long are you going to leave me out here twisting in the wind? You know, you're, I wrote all this stuff about you being with me. Like, okay, where is that now? 
And God included this in his word. God's not afraid of your honesty. He's not afraid for you to tell him how you feel. He's not afraid for you to say, God, I'm mad at you. I know it's not because you did anything wrong, but yeah, that's how I feel. I'm mad at you for not doing what I thought you should do. I've said that. And I think God kind of just listens and goes, all right, I know, I know, I know you feel that way. Okay, got anything else? God already knows how you feel. But there is a deep value to being able to verbalize how you really feel out loud and know that God is not afraid of you. He knows how you feel. He made you. He knows you're struggling. He knows you don't understand it. He knows if you're mad at him or not. I remember when my daughter uh, was very, very small, and one morning, you know, the night, it was Saturday night, and she was going to get up early and go with me to church and get everything ready and do all the stuff, you know, that you do in the morning. And, but it was Saturday night, and I think we'd had people over or whatever, but it was late. And I said, honey, you're not going to be able to go tomorrow morning because you're going to bed really late. You'll be tired. She just burst into tears because she was really looking forward to that. And as a parent, you know, I feel bad for that. But I also knew that if she didn't get enough sleep, she will be demon-possessed in the morning. You know, and it's not going to be fun for her or me, and we're going to have to do it another time. You know, so yeah, she was mad at me, and she was upset, and she was crying. But, I, you know, it's like, I can't, she's just a little girl. You know, okay, I understand. You know, of course she's mad. Didn't change anything doesn't change how I feel about her. It doesn't change our relationship. And so, yeah, God knows, okay, you're upset, mad. Maybe it's unjustified. Maybe you're being selfish. I don't, you know, whatever. But God knows. And if we're, if we think he doesn't want to connect with us, if he think, if we think he doesn't want to hear from us, we're wrong. He wants to hear from you. He included in his word, this example, among others, of just a brutal honesty from someone who at the time was struggling. Now, if you continue reading in Psalm 13, then David kind of does that whole circle where he comes around. Okay, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're all powerful. And I know that and all the right stuff. But he also included the part where he was just, David was just barfing his frustrations on God. And God included it in his work as an example of how we can worship him too. So there was one item in the story that I, that I didn't include yet. So I included the kidney failure and the dialysis and, and the MRSA and the spine thing and the malignant tumor. And what else was there? Anything else? Then yeah, I went through some crap. But on the other hand, um, and I'm not saying that God owed me this because he didn't. And I had no expectation. What I knew going through all of that, and people were saying, well, is, you know, we're praying for your healing. And I said, you know what? I am absolutely confident that God is going to heal me from this one way or the other. 
He might heal me through the doctors. He might heal me supernaturally. And what we would call the miraculous healing. He might heal me by taking me to heaven. And in the entire time I've been walking with Jesus, of all the, with all the things that I have struggled with, one thing that for whatever reason I've never struggled with is having the confidence that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And so, you know, and that really kind of irritated my family. Because I kept saying, well, you know, guys, seriously, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the way I'm going to go. And they're like, Dad, shut up. Just quit saying, you know, and I get it. But, I mean, I really was never afraid of that. I was never afraid of that. But there is one more thing that with all of that stuff going through and the surgeries and the rehab and not being able to work and yada, 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 yada. Um, in 2018, I was blessed and my daughter gave me a kidney. So I have a female body part. I just like to say that because, you know, it's a little awkward when <laughs> people hear it. Um, but yeah, I have my daughter's kidney right here. And um, not because of anything that I did or earned or deserved, but I was very fortunate and very blessed. And just so you know, last Monday on Valentine's Day was National uh, Organ Donor Day. Recently, I was telling somebody, I'm just going to give a plug because it's kind of near to my heart. Um, I was telling somebody that, you know, my daughter had given me a kidney and I said, you know, you'd be amazed that you can live on one kidney really easily. What will happen is they take one kidney out, whatever kidney is left will actually literally grow and it can handle 80% of the kidney function that you require, which is actually pretty normal for most people with two kidneys. Okay. And so somebody, you know, I said, so really, you know, you, anyone could donate a kidney. And they said, well, do you know somebody who needs a kidney? And I said, right now in the state of Arizona alone, there are over 1,500 people waiting for a kidney transplant. I'm not trying to lay any guilt on anybody. Okay? I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> just putting it out there. And I was fortunate that, uh, yeah. So I didn't have to be on dialysis anymore. And, um, and that's a whole other thing if you've ever had to be on dialysis. So that was the update. So basically, here's the thing. How to handle what you think you can't handle. Number one, you got to recalibrate your expectations. Number two, stop asking God for help that he's already given. And start putting those resources into action. Number three, be honest with God. Be honest with God. Now, one thing I can tell you is none of those three steps work if you don't have a relationship with God. If you've not said yes to God's love and God's forgiveness, Jesus' death on the cross, those things aren't going to really do much for you. And so I say that, that 
by receiving Christ, by saying yes to God's love, by saying yes to God's forgiveness, by saying yes to God's offer and promise of eternal life within that whenever that day comes, when you take your last breath of oxygen, you will then go into God's presence, knowing that that's going to happen and knowing that you'll be there and safe for eternity. All of that enables you then to recalibrate your expectations, uh, to stop asking God for help he's already given, and to be able to pray honestly with him. And if today's the day that you need to say yes to Jesus, or maybe if you're not sure you've ever said yes to that, today's the day you could do that. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up, raise their hand, come forward, sing a song, kneel, or whatever. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to say, it's just a matter of saying yes to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love and forgiveness. Thank you that you offer and you pour those things into our lives all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side. And God, if there's anyone here right now that has not said yes to those things, have not accepted or received those things from you, God, I pray that maybe in this moment that they would be, they would do that, and that you would come into their lives and fill them up. God, for those that are facing hardship of any degree, of any type, that feeling of, I don't know if I can handle this. God, that you would allow them to see through your spirit, through your word, they can handle it. With you, with your word, with your spirit, they can handle it. That we can recalibrate those expectations, that we can start believing in the things that you have already given us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that, God, when we pray, we can be totally, brutally honest with you. God, thank you for those things, those truths, those realities. In Jesus' name.